Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Will Bess and Venters make it out of the valley with Tull's men on their trail? Will Lassiter and Jane find safety? Zane Gray, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. We are proudly supported by our listeners. We couldn't do this without you. Your monthly donation helps in so many ways, and it also gives you access to more classic titles. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a financial supporter today. A $5 monthly donation gets you a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. Thank you so much. There are 10 new titles from the archives now available on the website. Works from O. Henry, Kate Chopin, Guy de Maupassant, Louisa May Alcott and others are ready when you are. The first season of the Arsène Lupin podcast is complete. Binge all episodes of our Gentleman Burglar's own show and tell your friends. Links can be found in the show notes. App users and those who follow us on social media can see a short video of me talking about books. Check us out on the Classic Tales app or on YouTube, Instagram, Facebook, or TikTok. Links are in the show notes. And now, Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 12 of 12, by Zane Gray. Chapter 22, Riders of the Purple Sage Blackstar and Knight, answering to Spur, swept swiftly westward, along the white, slow-rising, sage-bordered trail. Venters heard a mournful howl from Ring, but Whitey was silent. The blacks settled into their fleet, long-striding gallop. The wind sweetly fanned Venters' hot face. From the summit of the first low-swelling ridge, he looked back. Lassiter waved his hand. Jane waved her scarf. Venters replied by standing in his stirrups and holding high his sombrero. Then the dip of the ridge hid them. From the height of the next, he turned once more. Lassiter, Jane, and the burrows had disappeared. They had gone down into the pass. Venters felt a sensation of irreparable loss. Burn, look, called Bess, pointing up the long slope. A small, dark, moving dot split the line where purple sage met blue sky. That dot was a band of riders. Pull the black, Bess. They slowed from gallop to canter, then to trot. The fresh and eager horses did not like the check. Burn, Black Star has great eyesight. I wonder if they're Toll's riders. They might be rustlers. But it's all the same to us. The black dot grew to a dark patch, moving under low dust clouds. It grew all the time, though very slowly. There were long periods when it was in plain sight, and intervals when it dropped behind the sage. The blacks trotted for half an hour, for another half hour, and still the moving patch appeared to stay on the horizon line. 
Gradually, however, as time passed, it began to enlarge, to creep down the slope, to encroach upon the intervening distance. Bess, what do you make them out? asked Venters. I don't think they're rustlers. They're sage riders, replied Bess. I see a white horse and several greys. Rustlers seldom ride any horses but bays and blacks. That white horse is tolls. Pull the black, Bess. I'll get down and cinch up. We're in for some riding. Are you afraid? Not now, answered the girl, smiling. You needn't be. Bess, you don't weigh enough to make Blackstar know you're on him. I won't be able to stay with you. You'll leave Tulland his riders as if they were standing still. How about you? Never fear. If I can't stay with you, I can still laugh at Tull. Look, Byrne, they've stopped on that ridge. They see us. Yes, but we're too far yet for them to make out who we are. They'll recognize the blacks first. We've passed most of the ridges and the thickest sage. Now when I give the word, let Black Star go and ride. Venters calculated that a mile or more still intervened between them and the riders. They were approaching at a swift canter. Soon Venters recognized Tull's white horse and concluded that the riders had likewise recognized Black Star and Knight. But it would be impossible for Tull yet to see that the blacks were not ridden by Lassiter and Jane. Venters noted that Tull and the line of horsemen, perhaps ten or twelve in number, stopped several times and evidently looked hard down the slope. It must have been a puzzling circumstance for Tull. Venters laughed grimly at the thought of what Tull's rage would be when he finally discovered the trick. Venters meant to sheer out into the sage before Tull could possibly be sure who rode the blacks. The gap closed to a distance of half a mile. Tull halted. His riders came up and formed a dark group around him. Venters thought he saw him wave his arms, and was certain of it, when the riders dashed into the sage, to right and left of the trail. Tull had anticipated just the move held in mind by Venters. Now, Bess, shouted Venters, strike north. Go round those riders and turn west. Blackstar sailed over the low sage, and in a few leaps got into his stride and was running. Venters spurred night after him. It was hard going in the sage. The horses could run as well there, but keen eyesight and judgment must constantly be used by the riders in choosing ground, and continuous swerving from aisle to aisle between the brush, and leaping little washes and mounds of the pack rats, and breaking through sage, made for rough riding. When Venters had turned into a long aisle, he had time to look up at Tull's riders. They were now strung out into an extended line riding northeast. And, as Venters and Bess were holding due north, this meant, if the horses of Tull and his riders had the speed and the staying power, they would head the blacks and turn them back down the slope. Tull's men were not saving their mounts. They were driving them desperately. Venters feared only an accident to Black Star or Knight, and skillful riding would mitigate possibility of that. One glance ahead served to show him that Bess could pick a course through the sage as well as he. She looked neither back nor at the running riders, and bent forward over Blackstar's neck and studied the ground ahead. It struck Venters, presently, 
after he had glanced up from time to time, that Bess was drawing away from him as he had expected. He had, however, only thought of the light weight Blackstar was carrying and of his superior speed. He saw now that the black was being ridden as never before, except when Jerry Card lost the race to wrangle. How easily, gracefully, naturally, Bess sat her saddle. She could ride. Suddenly Venters remembered she had said she could ride, but he had not dreamed she was capable of such superb horsemanship. Then, all at once, flashing over him, thrilling him, came the recollection that Bess was Oldring's masked rider. He forgot Tull, the running riders, the race. He let Knight have a free rein and felt him lengthen out to suit himself, knowing he would keep to Blackstar's course, knowing that he had been chosen by the best rider now on the Upland Sage, for Jerry Card was dead, and fame had rivaled him with only one rider, and that was the slender girl who now swung so easily with Blackstar's stride. Venters had abhorred her notoriety, but now he took passionate pride in her skill, her daring, her power over a horse, and he delved into his memory, recalling famous rides which he had heard related in the villages and round the campfires. Oldring's masked rider. Many times this strange rider, at once well-known and unknown, had escaped pursuers by matchless riding. He had to run the gauntlet of vigilantes down the main street of Stone Bridge, leaving dead horses and dead rustlers behind. He had jumped his horse over the Gerber Wash, a deep, wide ravine separating the fields of glaze from the wild sage. He had been surrounded north of Stirling, and he had broken through the line. How often had been told the story of day stampedes, of night raids, of pursuit, and then how the masked rider, swift as the wind, was gone in the sage. A fleet, dark horse, a slender, dark form, a black mask, a driving run down the slope, a dot on the purple sage, a shadowy, muffled steed disappearing in the night. And this masked rider of the uplands had been Elizabeth Earn. The sweet sage wind rushed in Venter's face and sang a song in his ears. He heard the dull, rapid beat of night's hoofs. He saw Black Star drawing away farther and farther. He realized both horses were swinging to the west. Then gunshots in the rear reminded him of Tull. Venters looked back. Far to the side, dropping behind, trooped the riders. They were shooting. Venters saw no puffs or dust, heard no whistling bullets. He was out of range. When he looked back again, Tull's riders had given up pursuit. The best they could do, no doubt, had been to get near enough to recognize who really rode the blacks. Venters saw Tull drooping in his saddle. Then Venters pulled Knight out of his running stride. Those few miles had scarcely warmed the black, but Venters wished to save him. Bess turned, and though she was far away, Venters caught the white glint of her waving hand. He held Knight to a trot and rode on, seeing Bess and Black Star and the sloping upward stretch of sage, and from time to time the receding black riders behind. Soon they disappeared behind a ridge, and he turned no more. They would go back to Lassiter's trail and follow it, and follow in vain. And so Venters rode on, with the wind growing sweeter to taste and smell, 
and the purple sage richer, and the sky bluer in his sight, and the song in his ears ringing. By and by Bess halted to wait for him, and he knew she had come to the trail. When he reached her, it was to smile at sight of her standing with arms round Blackstar's neck. Oh, Byrne, I love him, she cried. He's beautiful, he knows, and how he can run. I've had fast horses, but Black Star? Wrangle never beat him. I'm wondering if I didn't dream that. Best the blacks are grand. But it must have cost Jane. Ugh. Well, when we get out of this wild country with Star and Night, back to my old home in Illinois, we'll buy a beautiful farm with meadows and springs and cool shade. There we'll turn the horses free. Free to roam and browse and drink. Never to feel a spur again. Never to be ridden. I would like that, said Bess. They rested. Then, mounting, they rode side by side up the white trail. The sun rose higher behind them. Far to the left, a low line of green marked the site of Cottonwoods. Venters looked once and looked no more. Bess gazed only straight ahead. They put the blacks to the long, swinging rider's canter, and at times pulled them to a trot, and occasionally to a walk. The hours passed, the miles slipped behind, and the wall of rock loomed in the fore. The notch opened wide. It was a rugged, stony pass, but with level and open trail, and Venters and Bess ran the blacks through it. An old trail led off to the right, taking the line of the wall, and this Venters knew to be the trail mentioned by Lassiter. The little hamlet, Glaze, a white and green patch in the vast waste of purple, lay miles down a slope, much like the Cottonwoods slope, only this descended to the west, and miles farther west, a faint green spot marked the location of Stone Bridge. All the rest of that world was seemingly smooth, undulating sage, with no ragged lines of canyons to accentuate its wildness. Bess, we're safe, we're free, said Venters. We're alone on the sage, we're halfway to Sterling. Ah, I wonder how it is with Lassiter and Miss Witherstein. Never fear, Bess, he'll outwit Tull, he'll get away and hide her safely. He might climb into Surprise Valley, but I don't think he'll go so far. Burn. Will we ever find any place like our beautiful valley? No. But dear, listen. We'll go back some day, after years, ten years. Then we'll be forgotten. And our valley will be just as we left it. What if Balancing Rock falls and closes the outlet to the pass? I've thought of that. I'll pack in ropes and ropes. And if the outlet's closed, we'll climb up the cliffs and over them to the valley, and go down on rope ladders. It could be done. I know just where to make the climb, and I'll never forget. Oh, yes, let us go back. It's something sweet to look forward to. Best, it's like all the future looks to me. Call me Elizabeth, she said shyly. Elizabeth Earn. It's a beautiful name. But I'll never forget Bess. Do you know... Have you thought that very soon, by this time tomorrow, you will be Elizabeth Venters? So they rode on down the old trail, 
and the sun sloped to the west, and a golden sheen lay on the sage. The hours sped now, the afternoon waned. Often they rested the horses. The glisten of a pool of water in a hollow caught Venter's eye, and here he unsaddled the blacks and let them roll and drink and browse. When he and Bess rode out of the hollow, the sun was low, a crimson ball, and the valley seemed veiled in purple fire and smoke. It was that short time when the sun appeared to rest before setting, and a silence, like a cloak of invisible life, lay heavy on all that shimmering world of sage. They watched the sun begin to bury its red curve under the dark horizon. We'll ride on till late, he said. Then you can sleep a little while I watch and graze the horses. And we'll ride into Stirling early tomorrow. We'll be married. We'll be in time to catch the stage. We'll tie Black Star and Night behind, and then, for a country not wild and terrible like this. Oh, Burn. But look, the sun is setting on the sage. The last time for us, till we dare come again to the Utah border. Ten years. Oh, Burn, look, so that you will never forget. Slumbering, Fading purple fire burned over the undulating sage ridges. Long streaks and bars and shafts and spears fringed the far western slope. Drifting golden veils mingled with low purple shadows. Colors and shades changed in slow, wondrous transformation. Suddenly Venters was startled by a low rumbling roar, so low that it was like the roar in a seashell. Bess, did you hear anything? He whispered. No. Listen. Maybe I only imagined it. Ah. Out of the east or north, from remote distance, breathed an infinitely low, continuously long sound. Deep, weird, detonating, thundering, deadening, dying. Chapter 23 The Fall of Balancing Rock Through tear-blurred sight, Jane Witherstein watched Venters and Elizabeth Earn and the Black Racers disappear over the ridge of sage. They're gone, said Lassiter, and they're safe now, and there'll never be a day of their coming happy lives but what they'll remember Jane Witherstein and and Uncle Jim. I reckon, Jane, we'd better be on our way. The burrows obediently wheeled and started down the break with little cautious steps. But Lassiter had to leash the whining dogs and lead them. Jane felt herself bound in a feeling that was neither listlessness nor indifference, yet which rendered her incapable of interest. She was still strong in body, but emotionally tired. That hour, at the entrance to Deception Pass, had been the climax of her suffering, the flood of her wrath, the last of her sacrifice, the supremity of her love, and the attainment of peace. She thought that if she had little Fay, she would not ask any more of life. Like an automaton, she followed Lassiter down the steep trail of dust and bits of weathered stone. 
and when the little slides moved with her or piled around her knees, she experienced no alarm. Vague relief came to her in the sense of being enclosed between dark stone walls, deep hidden from the glare of sun, from the glistening sage. Lassiter lengthened the stirrup straps on one of the burrows and bade her mount and ride close to him. She was to keep the burrow from cracking his little hard hoofs on stones, and she was riding on between dark, gleaming walls. There were quiet and rest and coolness in this canyon. She noted indifferently that they passed close under shady, bulging shelves of cliff, through patches of grass and sage and thicket and groves of slender trees and over white, pebbly washes and around masses of broken rock. The burrows trotted tirelessly. The dogs, once more free, pattered tirelessly. And Lassiter led on with never a stop. And at every open place he looked back. The shade under the walls gave place to sunlight. And presently they came to a dense thicket of slender trees, through which they passed to rich green grass and water. Here Lassiter rested the burrows for a little while, but he was restless, uneasy, silent, always listening, peering under the trees. She dully reflected that enemies were behind them, before them. Still the thought awakened no dread or concern or interest. At his bidding, she mounted and rode on close to the heels of his burrow. The canyon narrowed. The walls lifted their rugged rims higher and the sun shone down hot from the center of the blue stream of sky above. Lassiter traveled slower, with more exceeding care as to the ground he chose, and he kept speaking low to the dogs. They were now hunting dogs, keen, alert, suspicious, sniffing the warm breeze. The monotony of the yellow walls broke in change of color and smooth surface, and the rugged outline of rims grew craggy. Splits appeared in deep breaks, and gorges running at right angles, and then the pass opened wide at a junction of intersecting canyons. Lassiter dismounted, led his burrow, called the dogs close, and proceeded at snail pace through dark masses of rock and dense thickets under the left wall. Long he watched and listened, before venturing to cross the mouths of side canyons. At length, he halted fled his burrow, lifted a warning hand to Jane, and then slipped away among the boulders, and followed by the stealthy dogs, disappeared from sight. The time he remained absent was neither short nor long to Jane Witherstein. When he reached her side again he was pale, and his lips were set in a hard line, and his gray eyes glittered coldly. Bidding her dismount, he led the burrows into a covert of stones and cedars, and tied them. Jane, I've run into the fellers I've been looking for, and I'm going after them, he said. Why? she asked. I reckon I won't take time to tell you. Couldn't we slip by without being seen? Likely enough, but that ain't my game. And I'd like to know, in case I don't come back, what you'll do. What can I do? I reckon you can go back to Tull or stay in the pass and be taken off by rustlers. Which'll you do? I don't know. I can't think very well. But I believe I'd rather be taken off by rustlers. 
Lassiter sat down, put his head in his hands, and remained for a few moments in what appeared to be deep and painful thought. When he lifted his face, it was haggard, lined, cold as sculptured marble. I'll go. I only mentioned that chance of my not coming back. I'm pretty sure to come. Need you risk so much? Must you fight more? Haven't you shed enough blood? I'd like to tell you why I'm going, he continued, in coldness he had seldom used to her. She remarked it, but it was the same to her as if he had spoken with his old gentle warmth. But I reckon I won't. Only, I'll say that mercy and goodness, such as is in you, though they're the grand things in human nature, can't be lived up to on this Utah border. Life's hell out here. You think, or you used to think, that your religion made this life heaven. Maybe them scales on your eyes has dropped now. Jane, I wouldn't have you no different. And that's why I'm going to try to hide you somewhere in this pass. I'd like to hide many more women. For I've come to see there are more like you among your people. And I'd like you to see just how hard and cruel this border life is. It's bloody. You think churches and churchmen would make it better. they make it worse. You give names to things. Bishops, elders, ministers, Mormonism, duty, faith, glory. You dream or you're driven mad. I'm a man and I know. I name fanatics, followers, blind women, oppressors, thieves, ranchers, rustlers, riders. And we have. What you've lived through these last months. It can't be helped. But it can't last always. And remember this. Someday the border will be better, cleaner, for the ways of men like Lassiter. She saw him shake his tall form erect, look at her strangely and steadfastly, and then, noiselessly, stealthily, slip away amid the rocks and trees. Ring and Whitey, not being bidden to follow, remained with Jane. She felt extreme weariness, yet somehow it did not seem to be of her body, and she sat down in the shade and tried to think. She saw a creeping lizard, cactus flowers, the drooping burrows, the resting dogs, an eagle high over a yellow crag. Once, the meanest flower, a color, the flight of the bee, or any living thing, had given her deepest joy. Lassiter had gone off, yielding to his incurable bloodlust, probably to his own death. And she was sorry, but there was no feeling in her sorrow. Suddenly from the mouth of the canyon just beyond her rang out a clear, sharp report of a rifle. Echoes clapped. Then followed a piercingly high yell of anguish, quickly breaking. Again echoes clapped, in grim imitation. Dull revolver shots, hoarse yells, pound of hoofs, shrill neighs of horses, commingling of echoes. And again, silence. Lassiter must be busily engaged, thought Jane, and no chill trembled over her, no blanching tightened her skin. 
Yes, the border was a bloody place. But life had always been bloody. Men were blood spillers. Phases of the history of the world flashed through her mind. Greek and Roman wars, dark medieval times, the crimes in the name of religion. On sea, on land, everywhere. Shooting, stabbing, cursing, clashing, fighting men. Greed, power, oppression, fanaticism, love, hate, revenge, justice, freedom. For these, men killed one another. She lay there, under the cedars, gazing up through the delicate lace-like foliage at the blue sky. And she thought and wondered and did not care. More rattling shots disturbed the noonday quiet. She heard a sliding of weathered rock, a hoarse shout of warning, a yell of alarm, again the clear, sharp crack of the rifle, and yet another cry that was a cry of death. Then rifle reports pierced a dull volley of revolver shots. Bullets whizzed over Jane's hiding place. One struck a stone and whined away in the air. After that for a time, succeeded desultory shots. And then they ceased, under long, thundering fire from heavier guns. Sooner or later, then, Jane heard the cracking of horses' hoofs on the stones, and the sound came nearer and nearer. Silence intervened until Lassiter's soft, jingling step assured her of his approach. When he appeared, he was covered with blood. All right, Jane, he said. I come back, and don't worry. With water from a canteen, he washed the blood from his face and hands. Jane, hurry now. Tear my scarf in two and tie up these places. That hole through my hand is some inconvenient. Worse than this, it over my ear. There, you're doing fine. Not a bit nervous, no trembling. I reckon I ain't done your courage justice. I'm glad you're brave just now. You'll need to be. Well... I was hid pretty good, enough to keep them from shooting me deep, for they were slinging lead close all the time. I used up all the rifle shells, and then I went after them. Maybe you heard. It was then I got hit. Had to use up every shell in my own gun, and they did too, as I seen. Rustlers and Mormons, Jane. And now I'm packing five bullet holes in my carcass, and guns without shells. Hurry now. He unstrapped the saddlebags from the burrows, slipped the saddles and let them lie, turned the burrows loose, and calling the dogs, led the way through stones and cedars to an open where two horses stood. Jane, are you strong? he asked. I think so. I'm not tired, Jane replied. I don't mean that way. Can you bear up? I think I can bear anything. I reckon you look a little cold and thick so I'm preparing you. For what? I didn't tell you why I just had to go after them fellers. I couldn't tell you. I believe you'd have died. But I can tell you now, if you'll bear up under a shock. Go on, my friend. I've got little Fay, Alive. Bad hurt, but she'll live. Jane Witherstein's deadlocked feeling, rent by Lassiter's deep, quivering voice, leaped into an agony of sensitive life. Here, 
he added, and showed her where little Fay lay on the grass. Unable to speak, unable to stand, Jane dropped on her knees. By that long, beautiful golden hair, Jane recognized the beloved Fay. But Fay's loveliness was gone. Her face was drawn and looked old with grief. But she was not dead. Her heart beat, and Jane Witherstein gathered strength and lived again. See, I just had to go after Fay, Lassiter was saying as he knelt to bathe her little pale face. But I reckon I didn't want no more choices like the one I had to make. There was a crippled feller in that bunch, Jane. Maybe Venters crippled him. Anyway, that's why they were holding up here. I seen little Fay first thing, and was hard put to it to figure out a way to get her. And I wanted horses, too. I had to take chances. So I crawled close to their camp. One feller jumped a horse with little Fay, and when I shot him, of course, she dropped. She stunned and bruised. She fell right on her head. Jane, she's coming too. She ain't bad hurt. Fay's long lashes fluttered. Her eyes opened. At first, they seemed glazed over. They looked dazed by pain. Then they quickened, darkened, to shine with intelligence, bewilderment, memory and sudden, wonderful joy. Mother, Jane, she whispered. Oh, little Fay, little Fay, cried Jane, lifting, clasping the child to her. Now, we've got a rustle, said Lassiter in grim coolness. Jane looked down the pass. Across the mounds of rock and sage, Jane caught sight of a band of riders filing out of the narrow neck of the pass and in the lead was a white horse, which, even at a distance of a mile or more, she knew. Tull! She almost screamed. I reckon. But Jane, we've still got the game in our hands. They're riding tired horses. Venters likely gave them a chase. He wouldn't forget that. And we've fresh horses. Hurriedly, he strapped on the saddlebags, gave quick glance to girths and cinches and stirrups, then leaped astride. Lift little Fay up, he said. With shaking arms, Jane complied. Get back your nerve, woman. This is life or death now. Mind that. Climb up. Keep your wits. Stick close to me. Watch where your horse is going and ride. Somehow, Jane mounted. Somehow found strength to hold the reins, to spur, to cling on, to ride. A horrible, quaking, craven fear possessed her soul. Lassiter led the swift flight across the wide space, over washes, through sage, into a narrow canyon where the rapid clatter of hoofs rapped sharply from the walls. The wind roared in her ears. The gleaming cliffs swept by. Trail and sage and grass moved under her. Lassiter's bandaged, blood-stained face turned to her. He shouted encouragement. He looked back down the pass. He spurred his horse. Jane clung on, spurring likewise, and the horses settled from hard, furious gallop into a long-striding, driving run. She had never ridden at anything like that pace. Desperately, she tried to get the swing of the horse, to be of some help to him in that race, to see the best of the ground and guide him into it. 
but she failed of everything except to keep her seat in the saddle and a spur and spur. At times she closed her eyes, unable to bear sight of Faye's golden curls streaming in the wind. She could not pray. She could not rail. She no longer cared for herself. All of life, of good, of use in the world, of hope in heaven, entered in Lassiter's ride with little Faye to safety. She would have tried to turn the iron-jawed brute she rode. She would have given herself to that relentless, dark-browed tull. But she knew Lassiter would turn with her, so she rode on and on. Whether that run was of moments or hours, Jane Witherstein could not tell. Lassiter's horse covered her with froth that blew back in white streams. Both horses ran their limit, were allowed to slow down in time to save them, and went on dripping, heaving, staggering. Oh, Lassiter, we must run! We must run! He looked back, saying nothing. The bandage had blown from his head, and blood trickled down his face. He was bowing under the strain of injuries, of the ride, of his burden. Yet how cool and gay he looked, how intrepid. The horses walked, trotted, galloped, ran, to fall again to walk. Hours sped or dragged. Time was an instant, an eternity. Jane Witherstein felt hell pursuing her and dared not look back for fear she would fall from her horse. Oh, Lassiter, is he coming? The grim rider looked over his shoulder, but said no word. Faye's golden hair floated on the breeze. The sun shone, the walls gleamed, the sage glistened. And then it seemed the sun vanished, the walls shaded, the sage paled. The horses walked, trotted, galloped, ran, to fall again to walk. Shadows gathered under shelving cliffs. The canyon turned, brightened, opened into a long, wide, wall-enclosed valley. Again the sun, lowering in the west, reddened the sage. Far ahead, round, scrawled stone appeared to block the pass. Bear up, Jane, bear up, called Lassiter. It's our game if you don't weaken. Lassiter, go on, alone. Save little Fay. Only with you. Oh, I'm a coward, a miserable coward. I can't fight or think or hope or pray. I'm lost. Oh, Lassiter, look back. Is he coming? I'll not. Hold out. Keep your breath, woman, and ride not for yourself or for me, but for Fay. A last, breaking run across the sage brought Lassiter's horse to a walk. He's done, said the rider. Oh, no, no, moaned Jane. Look back, Jane, look back. Three, four miles we've come across this valley, and no toll yet in sight. Only a few more miles. Jane looked back over the long stretch of sage and found the narrow gap in the wall out of which came a file of dark horses with a white horse in the lead. Sight of the riders acted upon Jane as a stimulant. The weight of cold, horrible terror lessened. And gazing forward at the dogs, at Lassiter's limping horse, at the blood on his face, and the rocks growing nearer, last at Faye's golden hair, the ice left her veins. And slowly, strangely, 
she gained hold of strength that she believed would see her to the safety Lassiter promised. And as she gazed, Lassiter's horse stumbled and fell. He swung his leg and slipped from the saddle. Jane, take the child, he said, and lifted Faye up. Jane clasped her arms, suddenly strong. They're gaining, went on Lassiter, as he watched the pursuing riders, but we'll beat them yet. Turning with Jane's bridle in his hand, he was about to start when he saw the saddlebag on the fallen horse. I've just about got time, he muttered, and with swift fingers that did not blunder or fumble, he loosened the bag and threw it over his shoulder. Then he started to run, leading Jane's horse, and he ran and trotted and walked and ran again. Close ahead now, Jane saw a rise of bare rock. Lassiter reached it, searched along the base, and finding a low place, dragged the weary horse up and over round, smooth stone. Looking backward, Jane saw Tull's white horse not a mile distant, with riders strung out in a long line behind him. Looking forward, she saw more valley to the right, and to the left, a towering cliff. Lassiter pulled the horse and kept on. Little Faye lay in her arms with wide-open eyes, eyes which were still shadowed by pain, but no longer fixed, glazed in terror. The golden curls blew across Jane's lips. The little hands feebly clasped her arm. A ghost of a troubled, trustful smile hovered round the sweet lips, and Jane Witherstein awoke to the spirit of a lioness. Lassiter was leading the horse up a smooth slope towards cedar trees of twisted, and bleached appearance. Among these, he halted. Jane, give me the girl and get down, he said. As if it wrenched him, he unbuckled the empty black guns with a strange air of finality. He then received Faye in his arms and stood a moment, looking backward. Tull's white horse mounted the ridge of round stone, and several bays or blacks followed. I wonder what he'll think when he sees them empty guns. Jane, bring your saddlebag and climb after me. A glistening, wonderful bare slope, with little holes swelled up and up to lose itself in a frowning yellow cliff. Jane closely watched her steps and climbed behind Lassiter. He moved slowly. Perhaps he was only husbanding his strength. But she saw drops of blood on the stone, and then she knew. They climbed and climbed without looking back. Her breast labored. She began to feel as if little points of fiery steel were penetrating her side into her lungs. She heard the panting of Lassiter and the quicker panting of the dogs. Wait here, he said. Before her rose a bulge of stone, nicked with little cut steps, and above that a corner of yellow wall, and overhanging that a vast, ponderous cliff. The dogs pattered up, disappeared round the corner. Lassiter mounted the steps with Fay, and he swayed like a drunken man, and he too disappeared. But instantly he returned alone, and half ran, half slipped down to her. Then from below pealed up hoarse shouts of angry men. Tull and several of his riders had reached the spot where Lassiter had parted with his guns. You'll need that breath, maybe, said Lassiter, facing downward with glittering eyes. 
Now, Jane, the last pull, he went on. Walk up them little steps. I'll follow and steady you. Don't think, just go. Little phase above. Her eyes are open. She just said to me, where's Mother Jane? Without a fear or a tremor or a slip or a touch of Lassiter's hand, Jane Witherstein walked up that ladder of cut steps. He pushed her round the corner of the wall. Faye lay with wide staring eyes in the shade of a gloomy wall. The dogs waited. Lassiter picked up the child and turned into a dark cleft. It zigzagged, it widened, it opened. Jane was amazed at a wonderfully smooth and steep incline leading up between ruined, splintered, toppling walls. A red haze from the setting sun filled this passage. Lassiter climbed with slow, measured steps, and blood dripped from him to make splotches on the white stone. Jane tried not to step in his blood, but was compelled, for she found no other footing. The saddlebag began to drag her down. She gasped for breath. She thought her heart was bursting. Slower, slower yet, the rider climbed, whistling as he breathed. The incline widened. Huge pinnacles and monuments of stone stood alone, leaning fearfully. Red, sunset haze shone through cracks where the wall had split. Jane did not look high, but she felt the overshadowing of broken rims above. She felt that it was a fearful, menacing place, and she climbed on in heart-rending effort. And she fell beside Lassiter and Fay at the top of the incline in a narrow, smooth divide. He staggered to his feet, staggered to a huge, leaning rock that rested on a small pedestal. He put his hand on it, the hand that had been shot through, and Jane saw blood drip from the ragged hole. Then he fell. Jane, I can't do it, he whispered. What? Roll the stone. All my life, I've loved to roll stones, and now I can't. What of it? You talk strangely. Why roll that stone? I planned to fetch you here to roll this stone. See? It'll smash the crags, loosen the walls, close the outlet. As Jane Witherstein gazed down that long incline, walled in by crumbling cliffs, awaiting only the slightest jar to make them fall asunder, she saw Tull appear at the bottom and begin to climb. A rider followed him, another, and another. See? Tull. The riders. Yes. They'll get us. Now. Why? Haven't you strength left to roll the stone? Jane, it ain't that. I've lost my nerve. You? Lassiter? I wanted to roll it. Meant to. But I can't. Venters's valley is down behind here. We could live there. But if I roll the stone, we're shut in for always. I don't dare. I'm thinking of you. Lassiter, roll the stone, she cried. He arose, tottering, but with set face. 
and again he placed the bloody hand on the balancing rock. Jane Witherstein gazed from him down the passageway. Tull was climbing. Almost, she thought, she saw his dark, relentless face. Behind him more riders climbed. What did they mean for Faye, for Lassiter, for herself? Roll the stone, Lassiter, I love you. Under all his deathly pallor, and the blood, and the iron of seared cheek and lined brow, worked a great change. He placed both hands on the rock, and then leaned his shoulder there, and braced his powerful body. Roll the stone! It stirred. It groaned. It grated. It moved. And with a slow grinding, as of wrathful relief, began to lean. It had waited ages to fall, and now was slow in starting. Then, as if suddenly instinct with life, it leaped hurtlingly down to alight on the steep incline, to bound more swiftly into the air, to gather momentum, to plunge into the lofty leaning crag below. The crag thundered into atoms, a wave of air, a splitting shock, dust shrouded the sunset red of shaking rims, dust shrouded Tull as he fell on his knees with uplifted arms, shafts and monuments and sections of wall fell majestically. From the depths there rose a long-drawn, rumbling roar. The outlet to Deception Pass closed forever. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of Riders of the Purple Sage, Part 12 of 12, by Zane Gray. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a monthly supporter by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Donate $5 a month and get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. It's a great way to build your library of classic literature. Thanks for pitching in. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. 